Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. On the coast of far northern California, near Eureka, there's an island, Indian Island. That's what white people call it. The indigenous people know it as Tulawat. More than 150 years ago, a brutal massacre took place on this island when white settlers targeted a peaceful tribe. I'm Sasha Coca. Today on the California Report magazine, reporter Izzy Bloom takes us to Tilawat Island to understand why this massacre, which was one of just many massacres of Native Americans during the gold rush, captured the nation's attention. But this isn't just another story about our state's horrific history. It's a story about people trying to do the right thing, trying to make reparations for that past. And it's about the complicated reality of how those good intentions can unravel. Here's Izzy. There's an image of Tulawat that I can't get out of my head. It's the image of the island burning. And somewhere on the north end of that island, a baby is wrapped up in his mother's arms. She'd fallen into a ditch, her body shielding the baby from view. I imagine someone must have turned over her dead body and pried apart her arms to recover the infant. Against all odds, he was alive. I can't stop thinking about that baby and how he ended up there on a bitter winter morning, surrounded by a sea of dead bodies, and how his descendants would fight to take back everything he'd lost that night. Tulawat Island sits in the center of Wiat ancestral lands. It's also the spiritual center of the universe for the tribe. That's where the creator put us. That's where we came from. Cheryl Seidner is a registered member of the Wiat tribe, an indigenous people who've lived in the Humboldt Bay region of Northern California for thousands of years. Now, some of them live on Table Bluff Reservation, just south of the bay. When Cheryl opens the door to her mint green home on the reservation, her two-month-old puppy scurries out. Hey, Lacey. Oh, you're smaller than my foot. Cheryl's new puppy named Lacey spends our interview either chewing on Cheryl's hand or trying to climb onto her shoulders. Lacey, knock it off. But Cheryl is a forgiving person, so she can't stay mad at Lacey for long. Oh, isn't that just adorable (laughs) face? The creator made sure that dogs all have this sad face so you you love them. We sit down and Cheryl starts sharing some of the Weot history that's been passed down in her family through the generations. In the Weot creation story, she tells me, it all started with a flood. And this Weot woman was told that there was going to be a flood and that she had to make a basket. A basket so tight that water can't get in. Then she places her children inside. And the rivers rose, the ocean rose, and the basket floated. And then it landed on the island. Tuluat Island. Cheryl says for the Weot tribe, The island is their church. 
I wanted to get a sense of the island for myself. So Helena Wilkinson, Cheryl's grandniece, takes me to Tulawat. For years, you could only reach the island by boat. Now there's a way to drive, but we have to pull off the side of the highway and walk down onto a marshy piece of land that at high tide gets partially swallowed by the bay. So we're on the island of Tulawat. We're at the highest spot on the island where the village was and where the massacre happened. A 14-foot deep clamshell mound lifts the north end of the island above the bay. The shell mound's more than a thousand years old and contains bits and pieces of things representing centuries of Wiat daily life. The remains of shellfish they ate, tools and ceremonial items, even burial remains. It is surreal to think of everything that happened here and all the people that have walked here before and whose lives ended here. Cheryl and Helena have both thought a lot about the massacre that took place on this island back in 1860. That baby found in his dead mother's arms, he was actually their ancestor. His name was Jerry James. If we were to go back to February of 1860, can you kind of imagine what the day might have been like? Well, I like to imagine it with, you know, all the little youngins running around naked in the sun and some people down at the water cleaning animals. Or then the men like Jerry and his parents were on Tulawat to celebrate their version of New Year's, the world renewal ceremony. Neighboring tribes also joined in on the week of singing and dancing and praying. And I'm sure you could smell the fish or seafood cooking and some sand bread. On the sixth day of the ceremony, the dancers woke up before the sun. They put on deer hides and headbands with porcupine quills and eagle feathers, skirts with abalone and clamshells. Jerry's father, a man called Captain Jim, led the ceremony that day starting with a dance performed to heal and balance out the world. So they would jump on the ground and, and shake the ground so that the bad spirits would go away and leave the good spirits. Of course, there were no recordings of this dance back in 1860. In fact, Cheryl says world renewal ceremony dances are so sacred, they aren't even recorded today. What you're hearing instead is a recording from one of Cheryl's relatives of a different tribal song recorded back in the 1920s. Just to give us a feel for what Wiat songs sounded like more than 100 years ago. Back at that world renewal ceremony in 1860, the singing and dancing continued through sunset. And then came nightfall. At the end of a long day, the winter winds howling, the women, children, and elderly people hunkered down to spend the night. Meanwhile, Captain Jim and the rest of the Wiat men climbed into dugouts and paddled to the coast to gather food and supplies for the final ceremony the next day. After Captain Jim and the Wiat men left, another group of men arrived on Tulawat by boat. These were white men, some of the settlers who'd flooded into Humboldt in 1849 in search of gold. The men called themselves the Humboldt Cavalry. They were vigilantes acting outside of the law, but it's not like they were just random thugs. Humboldt historian Jerry Rohde says these white men were arriving to the island during a time when state policies encouraged the persecution of indigenous people. And so they were just... Uh, right from the start, uh, treating these Indians as obstacles who didn't have any rights of their own 
One of the first laws passed by the first California legislature allowed white people to take indigenous children and adults as indentured servants. California's governor at the time, Peter Hardiman Burnett, was a former slaveholder and had a vision of an all-white state. He even paid some local militias to kill Native Americans. Here's Cheryl. So they go out and kill Indians. They scalped them and sent their head, hair to whomever it had to be and, and collected a bounty on it. The Humboldt cavalry were not paid, and yet they still resolved to, quote, kill every peaceable Indian man, woman, and child in this part of the country. So on the night of February 25th in 1860, the Humboldt cavalry landed on Tulawat. To my knowledge, they did not bring any guns because they didn't want anybody here. You can hear a shot for miles, but you can't hear anybody being clubbed to death. And so how did the people on the island react? Did they did they hide? Did they fight back? Did they escape? What, what did they have to fight back with? They went there to pray. You wouldn't go to church with a gun in your belt or a knife in your hand. You go to pray. You go to pray. And they came into their church and they killed them. The next morning, the bay flowed red with blood. Only a handful of people survived the massacre. On a windy day, Cheryl and I sit at a picnic table facing the bay and the island. As she looks out at Tulawat, Cheryl remembers a story that's been passed down about one of the survivors of the massacre, an elderly woman. I mean, I have this image in my head where she's quagmired in the mud, you know, and she can't get out, and she's just pouring her heart out and singing a song for mourning. I of hey, oh ho yo, I of hey, oh ho yo, I of hey, oh ho yo, oh ho yo, oh ho yo. It's not clear who found the body of Captain Jim's wife. It's unthinkable that he might have been the one to find her struck down, to find her body in a ditch. Or that he might have been the one to turn her over and discover his child in her arms, saved by the basket of her body tightly wrapped around the baby. The Humboldt Cavalry carried out at least 10 more attacks on Weot villages elsewhere in Humboldt over the next week. 300 Native Americans were murdered, possibly several hundred more. And historian Jerry Rohde says nobody did anything about it. The massacre perpetrators uh, managed to get away scot-free. They were never punished. A couple of the people who helped organize the massacres ran for government office in the next election, and they were elected by wide majorities, uh, which tells me, as near as I can figure it out, that the local people, uh, at least a majority of them, approved of what had happened. After the 1860 massacres, U.S. troops corralled the surviving Wiat people and moved them to a nearby military fort, which left a convenient opening for white settlers to quickly take over Wiat land, including Tulawat. Lawless massacres and even state-sanctioned murders of indigenous people were by no means uncommon during this time. And yet, what happened in Humboldt seized the nation's attention. Writer Brett Hart, then a local journalist, published a scathing account of the massacre's aftermath in the paper The Northern Californian. 
age nor sex had been spared. Little children and old women were mercilessly stabbed and their skulls crushed with axes. The closest city to Tulawat, about a mile east of the island, is Eureka. After the massacres, newspapers in San Francisco and New York dubbed Eureka Murderville. The Humboldt Butchery of Indian Infants and Women. The Humboldt Bay Massacre of Indians, Murderville. Jerry Rohde says that these massacres got such national attention because of the scale of the attacks, but also because newspapers explained the Wiat people were peaceful, and that generated sympathy among readers. But in time, this side of the city's history would fade. Instead, Eureka is remembered for that classic California tale of prospectors, 49ers risking it all in hopes of striking it rich. The exuberant exclamation, Eureka, meaning I found it, is still California's official state motto. But we ought people never forgot what happened here. When I was a teenager, I thought one day we were going to have the island. That's when I was about 16, 17 years old. I thought we should have our island back. Did you ever think that you would be the one to help the tribe get the island back? Never. Never. We had people had all, like had always intended to go back to the island. Like, I don't think there was ever a generation in which that wasn't happening. Michelle Vassell has worked on the tribal council alongside Cheryl for decades. The first real effort to return the island happened with our former chairman, um, Albert James, um, attempted to um, get the city of Eureka to return part of the island uh, to the Wiat tribe. Albert James was the great-grandson of that baby that survived the massacre, and also Cheryl's uncle. This was the early 1970s. Cheryl was a teenager at the time and remembers her uncle being turned away, in part because their tribe wasn't federally recognized. The Weots, along with more than 100 other tribes across the country, lost their status in the 50s and 60s under the federal policy known as termination. The U.S. government dissolved treaties, dismantled tribal governments, and eliminated reservations, seizing more than a million acres of indigenous land. Good evening, and welcome to Indian Land Radio from Alcatraz Island in San Francisco. This is John Trudell on behalf of the Indians of all tribes, welcoming you. Across the country, indigenous peoples were fighting to reclaim their sovereignty and end termination policy. This was called the Red Power Movement. Because you've got to be Indian and you've got to live Indian to know what an Indian, what the Indian problems are. And Around the time that Cheryl's uncle was fighting to get Tulawat back, a major act of political resistance in the Red Power Movement was playing out on another California island, almost 300 miles south of Tulawat. In 1969, a group of indigenous Americans, including many students from UC Berkeley, took boats into the San Francisco Bay, bypassed a Coast Guard blockade, and seized control of Alcatraz for 19 months. We, uh, the Native Americans, reclaimed this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. The occupation focused public attention on the government's treatment of Native Americans. In the 1970s, President Richard Nixon repealed the Indian termination policy. That activism planted the seed for what would grow into the reparations movement today. But even after termination policy ended, many tribes spent years in court trying to regain federal recognition. In Humboldt, Cheryl's uncle Albert James spent six years fighting a lawsuit against the U.S. government. In 1981, 
the tribe won its status back. I look at it as that this little bitty tribe took on the giant of the world. That's the U.S. government. And we won. Wow. Following her uncle's success, Cheryl picked up the fight for land back in the early 90s, holding candlelight vigils to commemorate the lives lost in the 1860 massacre. Michelle Vassell says people from all over came to the vigils. It was a turning point. You know, that group of people that came to those vigils became like a movement that um, really, I don't know, changed the history of Eureka. And one day, a sliver of land on the island went up for sale. The plot sat on the northern end of the island, where the massacre had taken place. And when I found out that this, somebody was going to sell 1.5 acres, let's, let's do something about that. The only problem? He wanted more than $100,000 for it. And, you know, mind you that the Wiat tribe is a small tribe. We don't have any uh, casino. We don't have any form of economic development. So we didn't have the money for it. But Cheryl was determined. And she took it to her council and she asked if she could work to buy this piece of property. And they unanimously voted yes for it. How do we raise the money to get to purchase the 1.5 acres of the island? You know, I had this idea of, Oh, let's have an art auction. Oh, let's have a concert. Let's have a concert. The concert headliners included Trinidad Goodshield Aguilar, a Lakota Yaqui musician, and Floyd Red Crow Westerman, a Dakota Sioux musician who got started in country music. Cheryl also went on a speaking tour to raise money, and the tribe sold Wiat tacos and T-shirts. Kids from the local elementary school in Eureka even held a bake sale to raise money for the tribe to purchase the land. By the year 2000, the tribe raised enough money to buy the one and a half acres. It was just a tiny fraction of the 280-acre island. But it was a start. In recent years, a growing movement to reclaim what was once theirs has begun to form around the slogan, Land Back. These days, indigenous land back is happening all over California and even across the country. Governor Newsom has proposed giving $100 million to Native American tribes. The idea is the tribes could use the money to buy and preserve their ancestral lands. As communities and elected officials talk about reparations for historical wrongdoings, One of the big ways California has been making amends to Native Americans is by returning their sacred land. Land back, flam back, shambalalak. What does it actually mean? The hashtag land back movement that's gained momentum and national recognition over the past decade tells a story about people trying to do the right thing. But it can be a lot more complicated than that. So we purchased the property And when we first got it, you could not put, like, you literally couldn't walk across it because it was just filled with this mass of tangled metals and chunks of wood and things sticking up from all kinds of angles. So if you were to walk on it, you'd get, like, you know, cut and have to get a tetanus shot. (laughs) Tulwat Island hadn't exactly landed in responsible hands in 1860. Its new owner let a company build a dry dock and shipyard so that over the next century— the island became a toxic wasteland. There was just vats of, like, unknown chemicals that were, uh, like, slowly rusting. Michelle says there was even an entire seawall made of old marine boat batteries. 
if you can imagine, like every day the tide's coming in, it's washing across the batteries, and then it's going back out, and that's all contaminating our local bay. This is the story of land back that's easy to miss. In my reporting, I've talked to advocates and legal experts who say a lot of Indigenous groups getting land back end up with strings attached for various reasons. A lawyer who provides land back legal services told me that landowners can get tax deductions for donating land or selling it at a discount to an Indigenous-led organization. But sometimes that land is unproductive farmland or contaminated and can come with heavy financial burdens for the tribe. What we see in a lot of the cases of land return is that people are returned lands that they have to restore and that they have to sort of bring up to compliance with current environmental laws and policies. Kacho Rizling-Baldi has seen this firsthand. She's the department chair of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt and has worked on land back projects across the state. Oftentimes there are lands that also need a lot of like rebuilding from things that have happened throughout colonization. But Michelle Vassell says even if it's contaminated, the land has inherent value. It's sacred. We fully knew purchasing that 1.5 acres that that was an environmental disaster site. And um, I don't think we really um, cared at that time. From a Native perspective, it is, you know, it's forever. Like the the concept of time isn't so restricted to a one, two, three, four-year project. It was until it's done, you know, until the island is back to health. Cleaning up the site took a long time. At first, it was mostly just Wiat friends and family, plus volunteers, taking down two decrepit buildings and a water tower and filling barges with more than 60 tons of iron and steel. But as the cleanup wore on, it was kind of impossible for local Eurekans not to notice. And it's literally in the middle of the bay. Anytime you're driving around Eureka, you can see it. And so, you know, when people are out there with hazmat suits doing the soil remediation, you know, people saw that. Pretty soon, the community started to pitch in, removing tangled masses of metal and wood or volunteering at fundraising events. A local seafood restaurant donated shells to build up the eroding shell mound. So, you know, I think it really changed the way, you know, whatever preconceived ideas people have about um, uh, about tribes, they, um, they, they saw something different. Two years after the tribe purchased part of the island in 2002, Eureka elected a new mayor. Cheryl approached me very soon after I became the mayor. I know that. Peter Lavalli won the mayoral seat by a very slim margin, just 42 votes. I remember the day she came into the office and introduced herself, and she was very direct. (laughs) In 2003, returning land to a tribe for free was unprecedented in the United States. But Cheryl asked the mayor to return the city-owned part of Tulawat to the tribe. I didn't know that it was going to be a precedent setter. Uh, but I thought, oh my God, these people you know, were decimated. And we have an opportunity here to make a reparation for something really bad that happened. Peter Lavalli brought the issue to city council. But in the council, there was a lot of debate about Well, if we give this back, what assurances will we have that they don't build a casino out there? Like, what a rude thing to say. Could you imagine if all your ancestors are buried in this one cemetery and then you're going to build a convenience store on top of that place where your ancestors are buried? That's a rude thing that you would say about me and my family. 
By the end of negotiations between Eureka City Council and the Weot Tribal Council, the deal was this. Of the 245 acres owned by Eureka, the city would return 45 acres to the tribe. But, and here are those strings again, the tribe was not allowed to build a casino on the island. And the contract prevented them from putting any of the land into a federal trust, which would have made them eligible for federal funding to help with the cleanup. Just the idea that we as a sovereign nation don't get to choose our fate and what we do (laughs) is not preferable. It took the tribe another decade to clean up Tulawat Island. And in 2014, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency issued a clean bill of health. Finally, the Liot tribe could celebrate the return of their land on the island. And they could complete the ceremony that their ancestors never could. It was a good day when we got to uh, go on the island and, and do the ceremony, the world renewal ceremony. Five years later, the city of Eureka returned the rest of the city-owned acreage to the tribe. This has been an intergenerational movement to heal the island, to heal our people, to heal our community. At a city council meeting in October 2019, Weot tribal chairman Ted Hernandez signed the official transfer documents. We're going to continue to heal. And with the whole island back, we will heal this county. And then we'll heal the world. And this country. This time, the city returned the land without any strings attached. The people of Eureka really changed their history. Michelle again. They went from being the city that was made worldwide headlines as Murderville to being the first city that returned land back um, voluntarily to a tribe. Years before the tribe got the island back, Cheryl remembers driving home from work and praying for a new song. I was driving on a wet winter's eve, and it had been raining. And I'm going, coming across, coming out of Eureka, and I says, Daughter Eureka, Father God, creator of all things, can you give me a song that's mine for the new millennium? The song came to me. And... So I call it my coming home song. Nahi nahi noa, nahi nahi noa, nahi nahi noa, e noa, e noa, nahi nahi noa, nahi nahi noa. And she sang this song again that day in 2019, at the public signing ceremony returning to Luat Island back to her tribe. That's coming home, and we are finally home. That story came to us from the California Report's Izzy Bloom. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Izzy's story was edited by Katrina Schwartz and by me, Sasha Koka. Special thanks to Julia Longoria for editing help with this story. Thanks also to Janelle Orsi, David Cobb, and Adam Cantor. 
The Weot archival music you heard was used with permission from the California Language Archive and from Cheryl Seidner and the Weot Tribe. And this story was supported by the 11th Hour Food and Farming Journalism Fellowship. Katrina Schwartz is our show's interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer-director, with big help from Jessica Carissa. Brendan Willard is our engineer, with help from Seal Muller. Our intern is Olivia Zhao, and I'm Sasha Coca. You can catch all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.